Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. This is a service I provide for happy warriors all around the world, because happy warriors are those who take joy in confronting the challenges of life, meeting them head on, doing what they need to do when they need to do it, and becoming well-rounded personalities, developing at the same time their families, their finances, their faith, their friendships, and their physical fitness. So it is a great honor for me to serve the community of Happy Warriors through this podcast. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you all for spreading the word so effectively, because the growth of the show is a source of pride and pleasure to both me and to my wife, Susan Lappin. So um, onwards with today's show, which is a difficult one, by the way. If you sense perhaps a small reluctance on my part to dive into the material, well, I may have to plead guilty to that because it's not an easy one. Uh, What I'm speaking about is why are so many psychologists and psychiatrists Jewish? Now, this isn't the same as saying, oh, why is it that so many women's nail salons are operated by Vietnamese ladies? The answer to that one is simple. There was a period in which there was a, a large immigration to the United States from Vietnam, and uh, there weren't a lot of nail, the, the nail salon area wasn't saturated. Uh, it didn't require uh, oppressive government regulations and licensing to get into that business, and so it made perfect sense. A hundred years ago, women's nail salons were not run by Vietnamese ladies. Um, In 50 years' time, I very much doubt they will be again, because all the daughters of those Vietnamese ladies are uh, at Stanford and at Berkeley and at Harvard and at Yale, and uh, they're not going to be going into the nail business. But for a period of time, they did. But when I ask about psychiatry and psychology, I'm going back to the beginning of the field and um, you know, into the 19th century. And uh, I'm speaking not only about the United States, but I'm speaking about Vienna, Austria, before World War II. I'm speaking about Europe after World War II. Talk about psychologists or psychiatrists, and they are disproportionately Jewish. As you can imagine, this is not an easy topic for me to talk about. But uh, obviously, I believe that uh, my job is to tell you the truth much more 
then it is my job to massage you with warm butter and to make you feel good and for that matter to make myself feel good uh, when I deal with a subject on the podcast uh, it's usually something that has been I, something I've been working on something I've been grappling with for a long time and uh, and eventually it gets to the point where I'm ready to talk about it to you the happy warrior uh, even though I, I may not be prepared yet to uh, publish written material on it but that's coming very soon as well so why is this an important topic well because uh, a lot of side things are associated with it for instance when uh, I started researching the literature of this topic and I'm not the only person obviously to have noticed that uh, Jews are very overrepresented in the fields of psychology and psychiatry and by the way you know that's not true in 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 many other fields I mean uh, there are medical specialties many medical specialties which Jews are not heavily represented in um, sports <laughs> medicine for one but there are plenty others and um, there are also many fields and many activities so it's not as if Jews are evenly and randomly distributed throughout the activities and careers and professions that people select no psychiatry and psychology are heavily heavily populated with uh, people of Jewish ancestry so that's I thought worth looking at and also because it opens the door to a very important point it's a point that I think most Jewish listeners to this show uh, are somewhat familiar with but I don't think many people other people are familiar with based on the questions I get quite often it seems clear to me that for a lot of people what I'm about to say is largely unknown what I'm about to say is that being Jewish is not any indicator of your religious proclivities it should be but it isn't what do I mean by that I mean that for many people um, it's more tribalistic you see if somebody says they are a Christian then that means that at a certain point in time that person accepted a personal relationship with Jesus that's what it means but if somebody says they're Jewish most times what they mean is they were born Jewish if somebody says they're a Christian what you do not expect to hear from their mouths in the next moment are and I'm also an atheist you don't expect to hear that but with many people who are Jewish those people will also tell you that they're an atheist Sigmund Freud wrote in a letter to a Swiss friend of his by the name of Oscar Pfister um, who is a psychologist in Zurich uh, he wrote to him and he identified him he said I am a godless Jew he said it's funny that the field of psychoanalysis had to wait for this godless Jew to show up and for somebody to say I'm a godless Christian is absurd 
I, I, I don't know for sure, but I've got to think that for somebody to say I'm a godless Muslim is ridiculous. You wouldn't hear such a thing, I don't think. But um, with a very large proportion of Jews, particularly in the United States of America, a lot less so in Israel. But in the United States of America, uh, you will find many Jews who will call themselves Jewish by culture, uh, but non-religious, no relationship with God, non-believing, um, no connection with the Bible, no interest in the Bible, no belief in the Bible. That's very common. And um, I think that uh, if you tapped a Jew on the shoulder on any street in the United States of America, if you're not in, in a, um, an area with Orthodox Jewish population, such as parts of, of Brooklyn, New York, parts of Chicago, parts of uh, Dade and Broward counties in Florida, parts of Los Angeles, uh, parts of um, New Jersey, Teaneck, New Jersey, Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and, and a few other places. Those happen to be cities with uh, significant populations of Orthodox Jews usually in many cases not the majority, but a lot. But ordinarily, you tap a Jew on the shoulder in the street and um, and you uh, say to him, so um, do you believe that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai? Because that really is the seminal question of Judeo-Christian belief, is it not? And I, I don't think I have a single Christian friend who would answer that question anything differently than, yes, of course, don't you? Do you believe that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai? And let me tell you what the odds are. The Jew you tap on the shoulder on the street, there's a 60% probability that he will say to you, well, it depends what you mean uh, by God gave. I mean, you know, if you mean there was inspiration or that Moses compiled, and what you'll get is a long list of uh, ifs, ands, and buts. But the proportion of American Jews who will answer that question, again, the seminal question is, do you believe that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's not do you believe in God, because most people do answer that in some way or another as yes. But it's much more than that. If you ask the same people who would answer, do you believe in God? If you answer those same Jews who say, do you believe in God? They say, well, some kind of God, some kind of being, that's the kind of thing most Jews would answer. Uh, and then you say, do you believe that God prohibited the act of male homosexuality? They're absolutely not. So you've got to see and you've got to know that not just in the present stage, not only in 2022, but for years and years and years, 
and I dare say into the future as well, uh, for a large number of people who think of themselves as Jewish, who are born Jews, and who would probably answer in the affirmative if somebody said, are you Jewish, provided the questioner was not a Nazi with a machine gun, but uh, they'd say, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I'm Jewish. Those same people would have to tell you if you if you develop the conversation a little further that their value system is not Jewish. Their value system is secular modernity, secular socialism, secular fundamentalism. And for many years people used to joke that um, the Democratic Party was the uncircumcised wing of the Jewish community. People used to joke about that in America. I suppose it's a lot less of a joke today. But many of the uh, big names one knows of as being Jewish have zero commitment to God or his message to mankind. You really have to know and you have to understand that. That's really important. And it has a lot to do with this question of why are Jews so overrepresented in the professions of mental health, psychiatry and psychology. Why? What's going on there? Well, let's first of all just take a look at who some of these people are. I, uh, I wrote some of them down. This is by no means a comprehensive list, I can assure you. But it starts, of course, with Sigmund Freud. And, um, and look, I do know that this show is going to be somewhat controversial, uh, which is deeply distressing to me because, as regular listeners know, my paths are the paths of righteousness and my ways are the ways of peace. I shy away from being controversial. I don't ever want to say anything that makes people upset because I think that people should go through life like tennis balls floating down a gutter. <laughs> Not exactly, but um, I, I give you warning that uh, what I'm about to tell you, much of what I'm about to tell you, uh, will be uh, contradicted by almost every university in the world. Not all, but almost every university in the world. And what I'm going to say to you is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't worry me. It shouldn't worry you. You know why? Because we're not talking about nuclear physics. If we spoke about nuclear physics, I wouldn't say to you that listen, I'm going to leave it to you to judge whether what I'm telling you is true or not, because most people are not familiar with nuclear physics. So you would feel a very legitimate need to find out whether the nuclear physics department at your local university thinks that Rabbi Daniel Lappin knows what he's talking about or is talking through his hat. If we're speaking about quantum mechanics, I can't say to you, look, you must use your own judgment. How can you use your judgment on quantum mechanics? I, I think the world of my happy warriors, but I also know that probably no more than a few percent of you are familiar with the field of quantum mechanics. And why should you be? Uh, it's not as if we're speaking about um, 
complex um, areas of biology where again you can't use your judgment but when we talk about metaphysical areas you can use your judgment because nobody else is of necessity more expert than you. What do I mean by that? If uh, we talk about the, um, shall we say, the ideal spacing between children when you build a family, do you think that you know less? Let's assume that you're a parent. Do you know less than a professor of um, biology at the local university? Do you think you know less than the professor of psychology at the local university? Why would you think that? How about if we're talking about relationships between parents and children, relationships between siblings? How about if we're talking about the, the nature of male-female relationships? Do you really need to be told by a professor at a university the truth about these things? No, because in metaphysical areas, ordinary human beings who are living life actively and passionately and meaningfully develop deep understandings of all of these things. You know, William Shakespeare, again, not everybody reads William Shakespeare, and, and I didn't get him until I was into my 30, well into my 30s. It, he made no sense to me at all. And then somebody helped me. Uh, but now I look, William Shakespeare didn't go to university. William Shakespeare did not have the benefit of uh, modern science in any way whatsoever. For heaven's sake, he lived in the 16th century, what do you want? And yet, in metaphysical areas, in areas having to do with the human soul, having to do with human nature, above all human nature, having to do with relationships between parents and children, having to do with relationships between men and women. William Shakespeare is way ahead of the professor in the local university's Department of Psychology. He's much closer to where you are. As a happy warrior living life in real terms, you know about these things. You have a sense of human nature. You're honest. You recognize your weaknesses. You don't need the confirmation from anybody outside. Unlike, you know, if we were speaking about, uh, uh, you know, let's talk about why the formula for gravitational attraction is very similar to the formula for electrostatic attraction given that the two forces have nothing to do with one another. Now at that point you'd be perfectly legitimate, uh, legitimately uh, justified in saying to yourself, you know, I, I need to consult somebody who knows more than I do about these areas. Makes sense but not about metaphysical areas. And, and I hope you're very clear. Things that have to do with human nature, things that have to do with basic human relationships, you are not only the equal of that university professor or that academic or that doctor, you may be ahead of him or her because if he or she is not married and you are, you are already ahead of the game because you've learned things about yourself and about your spouse and about human nature that 
that person probably does not know. So please use your judgment on the things we're going to be discussing and uh, evaluate them on the basis of your own knowledge and your own experience and even your own instincts. So we can uh, take a look at some of these people. Um, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud made his one and only visit to the United States in 1909. Uh, he came to give a talk at uh, Clark College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, he made no secret of the fact that he disliked America, disliked coming, but he liked the money he got for the lecture. Um, I don't call him Sigmund Freud. I have to tell you, I call him Sigmund Fraud. I don't want to devote the uh, any lengthy portion of the limited time we have together right now uh, to detailing the failures and frauds of Freud's life. But uh, he was not an honest person. He lied. He lied about the treatment. He lied about the results. Um, he was not a good person in any way. He um, had an incestuous relationship with his sister-in-law, um, adulterous and incest. It was the guy was no good. He was not a good person. Say, so, all right, fine. Maybe he wasn't a good person, but you know, um, Richard Wagner, great musician, great composer. Uh, I I think the. The, 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 the lengthy four-part ring cycle is extraordinary music. Rotten human being, a really, really, really rotten human being. So are we saying the same thing? Sigmund Freud, a rotten human being, which he was, but a great scientist? No, he wasn't a great scientist at all. In fact, he devoted much of his life to trying to persuade the scientific world to recognize that psychoanalysis was a science. But it's absurd. I mean, to call that a science. There are a lot of things that we call sciences today which shouldn't be sciences. Economics. Economics shouldn't be a science. You know why? Because economics has a lot to do with human character and human nature. And so economists like to reduce everything to a scientific foundation. Um, according to the economics, if two men have exactly the same statistics, same age, same education, same earning, same jobs, let's say theoretically, they, they just had the same activities, the same financial activities, does that mean that by the age of 40 they'll both have the same net worth? Of course not. Science would say, well, yes, you know, if they both earned the same amount of money for the last 20 years, then yes, they, but it's not true because human character comes into it. One of the men saves and scrimps and invests and is frugal. The other one is a spendthrift, wastes money on the latest consumer baubles and blings. And so, yeah, it, you can't, it's a character thing. How one does financially has a lot to do with your character. It's not just a science. Um, the idea of trying to turn the human being into the result of a scientific analysis doesn't work very well. Freud was a big fraud. Freud was a liar. He was a cheat. And... Um, 
nothing, nothing much good to say about the man, to tell you the honest truth. Um, but Jewish he was. Now, people have written, and I've seen papers written, on, well, F Freud's Jewish background helped him understand dreams. Complete, unadulterated bilge water. Freud had zero Jewish background. He was tribalistically a Jew. He said, yes, I'm, you know, I, I'm a Jew. But he's a godless Jew. There was no value system that came from Judaism, and that's really the defining characteristic. Whether your sense of good and evil flows from God and the Bible, or whether it flows from modern views, the latest pages of the latest issue of psychology today, or anywhere else. No. Where the value system comes from defines what your belief system really is. <clears throat> so uh, he was, and that, by the way, is going to be central to everything else, because everyone I'm pointing out here is Jewish by tribe, Jewish by ethnic ancestry, but not in any way Jewish by belief or by values. And so uh, Joseph Breuer, Joseph Breuer was a, uh, a Berlin physician um, who actually started the whole idea of being able to help people's psychoses and neuroses by talking to them. And Freud latched onto that and ran with it. Max Wertheimer, uh, Kurt Kafka, Kurt Lewin, Kurt Goldstein, Kurt was a uh, fairly common German term, and this is uh, the uh, Psychoanalytic Society of Vienna. A lot of these people were the founding members, and uh, again, everyone here is Jewish. Uh, Hans Sachs, Max Eitingen, Alfred Adler, Eric Erickson, may have heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard of Eric Fromm, uh, Otto Rank, Bruno Bettelheim, Right, fairly well-known psychologist, uh, Joseph Jastrow. Now here it gets to be interesting because Joseph Jastrow is or was the son of Marcus Jastrow. And Marcus Jastrow wrote the or, or created the dictionary of the Talmud Bavli, the Talmud Yerushalmi, Midrashic literature and Targumim. And this was by Professor Marcus Jastrow. Professor Marcus Jastrow uh, wrote what's today known as Jastrow's Dictionary. Uh, it's almost impossible to study the depths of ancient Jewish wisdom without referring to uh, this. It's more than one volume, by the way. I'm, I'm only able to hold one volume at a time. But it's a multi-volume set and it's Dr. Rabbi Marcus Jastrow's dictionary, and um, Rabbi Marcus Jastrow had a son, and his name was Joseph Jastrow, and Joseph Jastrow became a psychologist. Uh, have you heard of Noam Chomsky, another Jewish psychologist, religious? Noam Chomsky, on his own, will tell you himself he's an atheist, but very Jewish, he'll tell you how Jewish he is, um, Abram Maslow, Maslow's Order of Hierarchies, Solomon Ash, very interesting psychologist, Jewish, uh, Oliver Sacks, the author, psychologist, author, um, Jewish, and it goes on and on and on. 
Why? What's going on here? Well, I told you that uh, uh, the story of Joseph Jastro gives us a little bit of a clue. So let me tell you about that. Um, there was a movie made in 1981. And um, yeah, 1981. It was called The Chosen. And uh, it might make a nice movie. It might interest you. If, if any of what we're talking about uh, rings with you, then uh, you might want to see The Chosen. It's based on a novel by Chaim Potok, a Canadian novelist, wrote a novel in 1967, 66 or 67, called The Chosen. And uh, in 1981, they made a movie starring Maximilian Schell and Rod Steiger in two of the starring roles. <clears throat> What was the movie about? Oh, by the way, rather read the novel than watch the movie if, if you have a choice. Uh, the novel called The Chosen by Chaim Potok, P-O-T-O-K. And uh, here's the story in a, in a nutshell. Uh, two uh, young teenagers in Brooklyn uh, in about 1944, towards the end, close to the end of World War II, one of them uh, is part of a his his part they are both uh, observant they are both orthodox they are both god-fearing boys from god-fearing families bible believing families excepting danny is from a hasidic family his father wears a beard he has side locks he wears a long black coat and he's part of a uh, he's the rabbi of a hasidic dynasty in brooklyn um, Ruvain is the other boy and he is also uh, observant and he's also uh, um, follows the the Torah um, but he is more modern so he dresses ordinarily like any other teenager and these two boys uh, are being taught uh, Bible as they're going through high school they're being taught the value system of Judaism <clears throat> And it was assumed that Danny would take over from his father, the Hasidic Rebbe, and in due course he would become the head of that Hasidic dynasty, whereas uh, Ruven was going to go on into some profession or another. Anyway, it turns out that Danny um, is an outstanding scholar of Judaism, but all he wants to do is become a psychologist. And as the story goes on, and there's a sequel to the story that Potok wrote called The Promise, the boys are, are young men now, and sure enough, uh, Danny um, took off his side locks and didn't wear a beard, retained a relationship with his father, but didn't follow into the Hasidic dynasty, and he becomes a psychologist. Notice that I tell you the story following on how Rabbi Marcus Jastrow's son became the psychologist Joseph Jastrow. In other words, my friends, you want to know why so many Jews became psychologists and psychiatrists. The first thing to note is that they are all 
virtually without exception, they are all secularized or atheistic Jews. Almost without exception, they are not Bible-believing or God-centric Jews at all. They are cultural, ethnic Jews, tribalistic Jews, if you like. I remember when Joseph Lieberman ran with Al Gore in the year 2000 for the presidency and were beaten by um, George W. Bush in a, you'll remember, a very contested election. But many, many, many Jews were angry at me, but really angry at me because I publicly uh, announced that I would not only not vote for the Lieberman-Gore ticket, I was going to vote for the George W. Bush ticket. And they were mad. You're a Jew. How can you not vote for Lieberman? He'll be the very first Jewish vice president in all of history. Well, conceding for the moment that that's a good thing, which I don't think it is, the reason I wouldn't vote for him is because I'm not a tribalistic person. Tribalism has never worked. Tribalism is part of the Arab world. Tribalism is part of the African world. These are not places known for being the cradles of civilization. Tribalism is not a good idea. And the notion that I should vote for somebody because he's Jewish, it's pure tribalism. I vote for somebody not because his skin is the same color as mine, not because his religion or his ancestry is the same as mine. I vote for somebody whose value system is as close to mine as possible. Talking about a very different story, very different story. And so you've got to understand that all of these and all the others that I didn't have space to list all these people, these people of Jewish ancestry is the way I put it, um, who have become famous in the fields of psychology and psychiatry, uh, they are people who have no connection with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know of a better way of putting it. I know that that sounds harsh. I'm not saying they're not nice people. I'm not saying they're not good people. But I am saying they're not good Jews. They are not Jews who have any connection whatsoever with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with his book at all. Right? That's just not, that's not what we're talking about. That's a big clue because here's what's going on. The biggest mystery on the planet is the human being. One little fingernail is more astounding than the biggest factory, the biggest nuclear power station, the biggest ac particle accelerator. The human being is the miracle of creation. The human being is astounding and inexplicable. And when we want to try and understand the human being, <clears throat> um, the latest science and technology tells us nothing. Go back 400 years to William Shakespeare, you will learn more about human nature than you will learn from the latest papers being published at your local university. If you want to know about human nature, look backwards. Ultimately, 
look here for the source. Now, what do we do about problems in human nature? Problems of the physical being, of the physical part of a human being, why that we, we understand. That's medicine. That's real medicine. That's right. I'm questioning whether these men practice real medicine. I don't think they do. They're practicing psychiatry and psychology, which are attempts to come up with a secular, God-free approach to understanding human nature. That's what it's about. And that's why in The Chosen, Chaim Potok has the son of the Hasidic Rebbe basically turning his back on the Hasidic dynasty and becoming a psychologist. Happy warriors, if somebody has no connection with God, desires no connection with God, and wants to help people at the deepest human level, then you become a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Let me put it this way. A psychologist or a psychiatrist is a secular rabbi. It's an attempt. It's somebody trying to probe the secrets of the human soul without God. That's all it is. And as such, it is completely doomed. You know why it's doomed? I'll give you three seconds to answer it yourself. Why is the attempt to find a secular solution to, hu to the human being doomed? One, two, three. Because we human beings are made up of two parts. There are two sides to us, the physical and the spiritual. And there is no way to say that either the physical or the spiritual is more important. We need both parts in order to function properly. As a matter of fact, the, the spiritual part often seems more important than the physical. What do I mean by that? Spiritual means something that cannot be measured in a laboratory. That's what spiritual means. Please don't confuse spiritual with holy, spiritual with religious, spiritual with godly, spiritual with virtue. No. Spiritual simply means something that cannot be measured in a lab. And um, if you are hiring somebody to work in your business, my bet is you are much more interested in the spiritual characteristics than the physical. Right? I mean, after all, are you that interested in what they look like? Are you that interested in the gender or the skin color? Or no, unless you know, maybe you're maybe you're in the swimsuit industry and you're looking to hire a model. I get it. Okay, fine. But um, other than that, the qualities you want are integrity, not measurable. No lab instrument measures integrity. Resilience, optimism. The ability to keep on going, even when you've been knocked down a few times. Those are the things we need. Those are not measurable in a lab. If there was a way to, if you came up with a way to measure them, you'd make a million dollars. 
because there's not a recruiting company in the world that wouldn't want to buy your test. But there is no such thing. There is no test because there's no lab. These are spiritual characteristics. And so if you want to understand the issues of human integrity, human optimism, human resilience, human resourcefulness, then you turn to this book. You do not turn to the fields of psychology and psychiatry because these are spiritual and psychology and psychiatry try and explain the human being with no recourse to spiritual reality whatsoever. This is something that is so important that it is almost impossible for you to succeed even at the things that you consider at first glance to be very important, your physical health, your uh, family relationships, your finances, even those three important things, you will never be able to be truly successful at them if you don't have an understanding of the spiritual dimension too. That's what's, I mean, you've heard of uh, uh, things like um, um, placebo, placebos, right, where the human body reacts to sugar tablets as if they were medication, provided that you believe that they were medication. It's the placebo effect. Very, very worrying to this crowd because it shouldn't happen. Because the human being should be nothing but a physical entity. Physical entity means it's an organic entity. Put in certain chemicals and certain things will happen. It's like a test tube. You run a reaction in a lab. You pour stuff into a test tube. You know what's going to happen. But a human being, you never know what's going to happen because we're spiritual, not physical. And in day-to-day -day interactions, I mean, there are people who will sometimes injure their own interests because they feel insulted, right? You've come across that. Shakespeare writes about that. You understand it, but that makes no sense to this crowd. They can't deal with that idea because why would anybody do that? And so they try to come up with explanations for that. And the explanations they come up with, I'll explain to you in just a moment. But in order to get a clearer picture of the, um, <clears throat> of the spiritual and the physical, uh, I want to recommend that if you haven't yet become a Happy Warrior member, you should do so. And you can even take out an annual membership and you can have a special access membership, which will enable you to get access to huge amounts of material, written, audio, printed, uh, video, that will help explain this. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. You've probably, you've probably many times heard of the first sentence of the Bible, the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Could have just said in the beginning, God created everything entirely, the universe. What is heaven? And, well, that's the beginning of us being introduced to the idea of heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical. It starts right there. But these are things that as a happy warrior, you would 
have access to. And so I want to recommend that uh, you visit the website rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, uh, delve into that and look for the Happy Warrior page and become part of our community of Happy Warriors because that way you won't need to hear the basic stuff because you'll have access to it right there. You won't need to ponder about mysteries that have baffled you for so long because it's right there. It's all accessible to Happy Warrior members, members who have become part of our community of people who have special access to all the material. So please go to rabbidaniellappin.com and join us, become part of the Happy Warrior community. And, um, and when you do that, you will be able to get a clearer grasp on the spiritual and the physical, because this is very fundamental to understanding yourself, your own motivations, your own urges and desires, all of that. Now, how does this crowd deal with it? Well, the way they deal with it is they speak about the subconscious. That was Uncle Sigmund Freud who spent a lot of time on the subconscious. And the idea was that there are various things beneath the surface, things you don't know. It'll take Sigmund Freud to tell you what's in your subconscious and what causes it. And these things cause you to have feelings of guilt and repressiveness and we're going to free you of that. It's, it's interesting that ordinarily, if you go to a scientist, a doctor, and let's say you've got uh, a problem with you, uh, an infection of some sorts, you don't expect to be going to the same doctor for that infection six years later. They cure you. But if you go into one of these chaps, and you go into psychoanalysis or you go into therapy, uh, how long does that take to cure you? Usually never. Usually it, you just keep going and going and going and going. One of the things Freud lied about was the fact, oh, he's cured people. Well, didn't quite work out that way. And so uh, the idea in um, in uh, the fields of psychiatry and, and psychology are that you've got these forces in you that are, are battling you and that you've got to free and liberate so that you don't, all right, all of that. The truth is that we are physical and spiritual. And the truth is that inside in each and every one of us, there is a tug towards that which makes us less, the, a tug towards the lazy, the indolent, the lethargic, the indulgent. But there's also another part of us that pulls us upwards. In other words, each and every one of us has a part that pulls us downwards and a part that pulls us upwards. And each and every one of us are in a struggle all the time. On the one hand, we want to become better husbands, better fathers, better brothers and sisters, better siblings, better children. We want to become better friends, better business associates. We want to become better in every way. But at the same time, 
there's a part that's tugging us in the wrong direction. And we battle with that. There's a principle which, again, you can get from Shakespeare, but you can also get it from in your own head. You, you know this. And that is that every time you win a victory, every time you deny yourself another chocolate cream eclair because you're on a diet, you make it a little easy, easier to stick to the diet next time. Every time you go to the gym and you work out, it's a little easier to do it the next day. And conversely, every time you yield, every time you indulge yourself, it becomes harder to resist the next time. These things are called habits and eventually they can even become addictions. How are you supposed to solve these things? And the answer is, you have to recognize the spiritual dimension. There is a pull towards sin, but there's also a pull towards the boss. There's a pull towards God. And ultimately, our ability to overcome the downward pull, our ability to become better people, is assisted by a connection with God who, as it were, helps give us a pull upwards and helps us overcome the negativity. In these guys' worldview, there is no God. And so there is no way to get any help other than, well, through them, of course. And that's what they try to do. Very often, promoting the very disease that they claim to cure. Because after all, what is mental illness? An anxiety of some kind brought about by what? Well, brought about, let me tell it you how it is. Um, and again, if you're an ordinary Western educated person, you are going to shudder with revulsion at what I'm going to say. But mental problems, mental stress, usually comes from sin. Old-fashioned, I know, but it does. In other words, doing the wrong thing. Because every time we do something that we know to be wrong, it becomes a little easier to do it the next time and a little harder to resist and do it again the time after that. Pretty soon it becomes built into us. It becomes our second nature. And yet we know that it's no good. That's right. That's part of where it starts. One, one can choose to move in one direction or the other. In one direction, and it's not an easy direction, Life isn't easy. It's a direction upwards towards God. It's a direction towards doing the right thing. It's towards becoming a better person. But then we can also let it slide and we can go the other way. And it might at first seem delightful because there's no rules. Whatever you feel like doing, do. And if you feel bad about it, well, one of these chaps will help you. Because there's no reason to feel bad about doing the wrong thing. Because there's no right and wrong. That's, that is really 
one of the main differences. And so what do we do? It's so easy to slide into doing the wrong thing. And then part of, with that comes mental stress and anxiety that can easily be diagnosed as a mental disease. But mental diseases have to be solved spiritually because they are spiritual. Physical disease is different. Physical disease can be measured in a laboratory. You take a thermometer, you measure your temperature, hey, you got a, you got a fever. But there's no instrument to tell you whether you have a mental disease. Only one of these guys will tell you that. But you know yourself if you're feeling mental stress and you sometimes feel you're going crazy with it. Search the catalog of sin. Find out what it is that you've allowed to become part of your nature that is causing it. And then you have to turn for divine help. You have to turn for supernatural assistance because we can't do it by ourselves. And don't for a moment think one of these guys can do it for you. They can't. It's basically between you and him. And that's how we deal with it. Now, look, I know what people are going to say. This is very dangerous. You're telling people, uh, yeah, I am. I actually am. I, I just have, as a matter of fact. I didn't imply it. I stated it unequivocally. That uh, mental equilibrium, either being in very good mental shape or terrible mental shape, is a spiritual issue. And if it's a spiritual issue, it's got to do with him above. And that's the way it can be solved and that's the way it can be cured. That's the only way to do it. And so, yes, the overwhelming majority of the founders of psychiatry, Jewish, yeah, of course, secular Jews who understood that the spirituality intrinsic to the human being is the best evidence of God, and they are desperate to transform the human being into nothing more than nine dollars worth of common chemicals. We're just a bunch of molecules of hydrogen and carbon and a bunch of molecules of, of water. And when you do certain things, certain things will result and uh, everything can be solved pharmacologically. We've just got to give you the right tablet and you'll be fine. Everything will be fixed up. We're not like that. We're spiritual beings. But if you are a Jew and you're a secular Jew and you want to validate your secular view of the world, one of the best things to do is to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist and try and work at developing a coherent model of the human being that doesn't depend on God and that has no spiritual dimension. And as we say in Jewish, lots of luck. Not going to work. So uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we have for today. Take a look at the website, rabbidanielappen.com, and um, join us, become a member of our Happy Warriors community. And until next week, you focus on your five Fs. 
regardless of what's happening in the world politically, regardless of what's happening militarily, regardless of what's happening economically. These are all big, big picture things. But none of them should be able to, in any way, handicap your progress with your family, your finances, your faith, your friendships, and your fitness. Your family, your faith, your finances, your friendship, and friendships, and your fitness. Until next week, I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.